0: Why is there bigotry?
1: Welcome to the Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we offer a unique take on prejudice, the psychological underpinnings for it, and the problem in America. Now, I know last time we promised that this episode would discuss self-esteem, but we lied. Steve? Steve? We changed our yeah. minds. <laughs> we, we changed our minds. Thank you. Well put. Uh, so anyway, we'll get into that other topic in the future. So some of our listeners... We have listeners? Have asked. Uh, yeah, I, I know it's hard to believe, but some of our listeners have asked who Ernest Becker is or was. So very briefly, he was an American thinker, teacher, and writer who was born in Massachusetts in 1924, fought in World War II, worked in France for the U.S. State Department for a while. Uh, I heard he may have been a spy. I don't think he was Uh, a spy. I think that's conjecture. Uh, (laughs) I think it's a joke. Anyway, uh, he became an anthropologist in 1960. Now, his story gets interesting when we find out that he was pretty much rejected by the academic establishment of his time for most of his career. At a time when science was getting more and more more specialized, Becker was asking big philosophical questions and, and looking not just into anthropology, but psychology, sociology, theology, philosophy, and the other ologies that presented <laughs> themselves. <laughs> he was prolific writing
0: nine books in 13 years. Nine books in 13 years. Steve, how long did it take you to write one book? You would go there, wouldn't you? Uh,
1: 15 years. Okay, okay. Slow and steady wins the race. There you go. So, thank you. So, Becker was apparently loved by his students. Uh, He was supposedly, you know, very dramatic in some of his presentations in class. But his interdisciplinary approach did not sit well with the administration at the University of California, Berkeley, leading to his getting canned. And at the time, hundreds of students, I don't know exactly how many, petitioned to keep Becker at the school and offered to pay his salary. Wow. But, but the petition didn't succeed and uh, he, he was released. So, he taught at San Francisco State until 1969 when he resigned in protest against the administration's policies, against the student anti-war demonstrations. That was the Vietnam era. And then he ended his career at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. He had to leave the country to, to get another job. Wow. Where, and that's where he wrote, or at least that's where he completed his Pulitzer Prize winning book The Denial of Death in 1974. And that's the year he died. Died of cancer at the age of 49. Wow. Two months two months before he, he won w- the Pulitzer
0: Prize posthumously. Unbelievable, and that's way too young for someone of this caliber, anyone really, to to go. So he was loved by his students, hated by many of his peers, and he wins the Pulitzer Prize two months after he dies. Yeah, life's not fair. No, it certainly is not. So getting back to the interview, our guest is the one we promised, so if you're a Sheldon Solomon fan, as we certainly are, you won't be disappointed. We're going to play for you an interview we conducted with Dr. Solomon... Sheldon is best known for co-developing terror management theory, which is based on the theories of social scientist Ernest Becker, who we were just talking about, uh, concerning how humans deal with our own sense of mortality. He's a professor of social psychology at Skidmore College and is author or co-author of over a hundred articles and several books. His most recent book is The Worm at the Core on the Role of Death in Life. Here's Dr. Solomon. Dr. Solomon is co-author of In the Wake of 9-11, The Psychology of Terror. He is a foremost authority and co-creator of terror management theory and co-author of numerous articles in this groundbreaking field and is a pioneer in generating empirical laboratory data to test and validate Ernest Becker's theories. Welcome back, Dr. Solomon. Thanks for joining us here once again. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Steve. Sheldon, we just introduced you as an expert in terror management theory. Would you say a little bit to our audience about what terror management theory is? Yeah, sure thing. Actually, Ken, you did a good job when you said
2: that terror management theory was designed originally to uh, test some of Ernest Becker's ideas. And... um Two of my graduate school buddies, Jeff Greenberg now at the University of Arizona and Tom Pazinski at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs uh, and I uh, were very moved when we ran into Becker's ideas uh, about prejudice. And, and as you recall, Becker's argument is uh, very simple and very striking. He He says that people are so intelligent that we actually realize that we're here, and that makes us realize that we'll die someday and that our death can occur for reasons that we could never anticipate or control, and that we're pretty much basically pieces of uh, breathing, defecating meat, uh, no more significant (laughs) or enduring than lizards or potatoes. And for the average individual, myself included, uh, that's an utterly potentially devastating set of realizations that Becker argued Uh, would literally paralyze us uh, with overwhelming terror if we didn't come up with a way uh, of somehow managing the potential terror engendered by the uniquely human awareness of death. And what Becker says we did, uh, not consciously, of course, was to develop and to sustain what we call culture, uh, humanly constructed beliefs about the nature of reality that people in groups share Uh, that serve an essentially death-denying function by convincing us that we're people who live in a meaningful universe and who individually contribute to that universe in significant ways, and in so doing, render themselves eligible uh, for security in this life and immortality in the next. All right, well, what does all this have to do with prejudice? And this is where Becker gets interesting in Escape from Evil, because he says two things uh, that we thought were quite striking. One is is that to the extent that your own beliefs about the nature of reality serve a death-denying function, then you're always going to have a problem when you run into somebody who doesn't share them. Because if you grant, either implicitly or explicitly, uh, the legitimacy of an alternative conception of reality, you do so by necessarily undermining the confidence with which you subscribe to your own point of view. And once that happens, you expose yourself to the very anxiety that those beliefs were forged originally to uh, help you resolve somehow. And the second problem is that even if there weren't different people around, uh, we would, in effect, create them. Becker's argument is that culture is a symbol, and no symbol as incredibly powerful as they can be is ever powerful enough to overcome the real reality of death. Reality
1: has a way of intruding. There you
2: go. So even the most powerful symbol, Becker argues, is not enough. And there's still going to be residual anxiety lurking beneath the surface of consciousness in William James' way of phrasing this. And in psychoanalytic terms, what Becker says is that we repress this anxiety And we project it onto other people that we designate as the all-encompassing repositories of evil, the eradication of which would make life on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what Becker called scapegoating. And so his argument is that uh, prejudice is an unfortunate psychological consequence of uh, the human animal, of being unwilling to tolerate other individuals who do not
0: share their conception of reality. Sheldon, we saw you in a now award-winning film, uh, Flight from Death, documentary film, and in that film you talked about uh, a study that you and your partners did that stuck with me. Actually, you talked about several, but the one right. that really stuck with me that was so striking uh, was with uh, several judges in uh, Arizona and a fictitious prostitute that you named and uh, the study that came out of that that justified, that uh, validated these theories about Ernest Becker's work. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I sure us?
2: could. Um, you know, a lot of years ago when we started talking about Ernest Becker's ideas, uh, a lot of folks were quite skeptical. They said, look, uh, this guy writes good books, but we don't have to believe any of this stuff because there's no proof. And so we decided as experimental social psychologists that we would try and see whether or not there were any merit to these notions. And our thought was actually quite simple. What we said is, if Becker's right, and our beliefs about the nature of reality serve a death-denying function, then if we ask people to think about themselves dying momentarily, in theory, that should make their psychological need for culturally constructed beliefs uh, more necessary And that should be reflected by exaggerated evaluations of people who either share those beliefs or or violate them. We thought that what we would see is greater affection for people who were similar to oneself or who uphold your important beliefs and greater hostility and disdain uh, for folks who are different. And so the very first terror management study uh, was conducted with municipal court judges in Tucson, Arizona. And we asked them to participate in what we described as a study of the relationship between personality attributes and how they make judgments about legal cases. And we had them fill out a whole bunch of questionnaires that were standard personality assessments. And we we did that to momentarily distract them from the actual purpose of the study, because right in the middle of those questionnaires was a little two-item questionnaire that asked them to briefly reflect on their thoughts and feelings about their own death. And in control conditions, uh, we didn't have the judges do that. And then shortly afterwards, we gave them an actual court case uh, from municipal court in Tucson, Arizona, and it was for alleged prostitution, which was the most common case at the time. So you said one group of judges who had thought a little bit about dying another group, that hadn't. That's so you, th- you
0: threw a little scare into half the population. That's and, right. And let the other ones be the way they awesome. are. Awesome.
2: And in technical terms, they served as our control group. Okay. A- and then we had all of the judges look at exactly the same court case, which was fabricated from actual court cases uh, where they were asked to review a an alleged prostitute and then assign a, a bail for how much the alleged prostitute would have to pay to stay out of jail. Okay. And, and what we found in the control condition was that the judges set an average bail of $50, and that is the average bail for that transgression in Tucson Municipal Court. However, after thinking about their own mortality momentarily, uh, the judges assigned an average bail of $455. And. Wow. Um, we found this
0: quite astonishing for a number of reasons. One and, is, and they is were real judges. These they are were real judges who,
1: who
2: did this. That's regularly. correct. Regularly. That's because right.
0: Judges are supposed to be above any kind of emotional uh, ap- appeal of That's this right. kind of thing. They're supposed to be very rational and apply Absolutely. the law.
2: And we thought this was an incredibly strong test because judges, by their training, are supposed to judge things on the merits of the case, unencumbered by their emotional affectations. When we asked other judges who didn't participate in the study, well, would this affect your judgment? Oh, they said, no, nothing would get in the way of our judgment and certainly not a momentary uh, request to ponder their own demise. Now, we've since done literally hundreds of studies uh, that have produced effects that are very similar to the one that we obtained with the judges. So, for example, in another study that we did in Arizona, We had Christian participants either think about dying or think about watching television. And then we asked them to form an impression of another student who was, or actually of two other students who were very similar, except one of them claimed to be of Christian extraction and the other claimed to be of Jewish heritage. And our interest, of course, was whether or not people would vary in their impressions of the targets as a function of their religion, uh, depending upon whether they had been asked to ponder their demise or not. And what we found in the control condition is that people did not discriminate. They saw the Jewish and the Christian targets as equal in attractiveness, thus restoring our faith in humanity momentarily, but unhappily in the more, what we call the mortality salience condition after thinking about Mortality death, salience, awareness of death. That's that, right. Okay. That's our piece of jargon okay. for when we momentarily remind people that they're going to die someday. And we'll talk more about different ways that we've done that over the years. But what we found in this study was that the Christians, after being reminded of death, increased their affection for the Christian targets and decreased their affection for the Jewish targets. So what you find is changes in attitude in both directions. And then we've done other studies uh, where we've shown that asking people to think about dying actually influences their willingness to physically aggress against someone who doesn't share their beliefs about reality. And we've also shown that these effects are very particular to thinking about death. They're not caused by being in a bad or angry mood, they're not caused by physiological arousal, and they're not caused by thinking about other things that might be unpleasant or anxiety-provoking. So you can ask people to think about being paralyzed, or giving a speech in public, or even a loved one dying, and that doesn't reproduce these effects. So they are quite precisely specific to thoughts of one's own demise.
1: How does terror management then help us understand racial prejudice?
2: Well, I think it just follows directly from what we've been suggesting. There is no more visibly salient difference than the color of one's skin although if you think about it for a moment it's quite arbitrary we don't clump people into uh, quote racial categories on the color of our hair or the color of our eyes which is just as likely a candidate if you think about it uh, but for some reason skin tone uh, it appears to be so obvious and so visibly salient that it seems to be one of the major means by which people sustain uh, beliefs in their own death-denial systems.
1: Now you did these experiments or other people re- replicated them in other countries, is that right? Like that's Like Germany, right. Israel, Australia?
2: Yes. How did those work? Well, those that's very important Steve and, and Ken. One of the things that I babble about often is that nothing in science should be taken seriously until somebody else reproduces it. We've published over a hundred of our experiments but It's not science if you're the only one who does it. Call it whatever you want. It only becomes science uh, when other people in independent labs, ideally in a wide variety of cultural and economic milieus, are able to reproduce these effects. And and as you suggested, there's been over 200 experiments, as far as we could tell so far, that have been published in peer-reviewed journals in about nine different countries. And some of them are very strikingly interesting. And so, for example, in a study in Germany, a very clever colleague of ours, Randolph Oxman, and his colleague showed that German university students, after being asked to think about dying, sat closer to fellow Germans and further away from Turkish infidels. They're the currently despised minority du jour. Uh, over in the Reunited German Republic and we also have a colleague Robert Wickland who was at the University of Bielefeld in West Germany at the time and he developed uh, what I think is an amazingly clever technique where we interviewed people either in front of a funeral parlor or a hundred meters to either side and what we find are the same effects. People that are interviewed in front of a funeral parlor uh, they show uh, an exaggerated affection for others who share their beliefs and the same kind of increased hostility and disdain for others who are different. It,
1: what What's the relationship between self-esteem and prejudice? It, it, th- doesn't that have something to do with it as well in terms of you know looking down on someone else, making yourself feel better? I think we talked about that some of yeah,
2: the shows. Yeah, we did, and I, I think... Uh, What I should say out of the gate on this one is that that's a complex question. And and like any difficult one, we don't want to rely on just one answer. Having said that, however, at least from Becker's way of thinking about things, there should be a very clear connection uh, between self-esteem. And the way that we treat other people, I don't know, do you guys know Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own? I love Virginia Woolf, and she she talks about how uh, that people being creatures of illusion uh, without self-confidence are like babes in a cradle. And that what we often do in order to fortify ourselves psychologically is to look down on other individuals. And she has a wonderful metaphor. She says it's like looking at somebody through a magnifying glass held backwards by making them look small, you make yourself look tall, right? But if you already have self-esteem, at least in theory, there would be no need to belittle someone else in order to psychologically aggrandize yourself. And indeed, in our studies, when we elevate self-esteem temporarily, uh, let's say by giving people false feedback of a flattering nature about themselves, Or when we measure self-esteem and just look at people whose self-esteem is fairly high, what we find is that people with higher self-esteem, when you ask them to think about death, they don't disparage someone who is different than themselves to the same degree. In fact, in our studies, they don't disparage them at all. So that's a very hopeful
0: possibility. That sounds like there's a direct connection between self-esteem and someone's potential to be prejudiced.
2: I would argue yes. Again, I I wish it were as simple as that. I don't want to claim that there aren't any other factors, but at least from an empirical point of view, it it is empirically the case that folks with higher self-esteem do not react as vigorously to reminders of mortality in unfortunate ways by disparaging folks who are different.
0: So with this work, which is exciting and amazing, actually, is there anything that can be done to improve race relations and in our country? That's okay. probably asking a lot, but yeah, it would be the first question uh, I would think people would have when, uh, when learning about this. Yeah,
2: good question. I mean, to be silly, if I could answer that one, I wouldn't be here now, right? I'd be on a beach <laughs> right. somewhere. you'd be on your there yacht. It <laughs> is, chugging <laughs> rum out of a out with my Nobel Prize tucked under my arm. And yet, yep. uh, I think, you know, one of the reasons why we are here is to ask the tough questions. And so, Yeah, one of those uh, possibilities, you know, how do we improve race relations? One is to uh, provide opportunities for as many people as possible in our culture to feel good about themselves. One of the things that I find exceptionally problematic about American culture today is that the things that we teach our children, Uh, to value in order to obtain self-esteem, being rich, being pretty, being young, are are not realistically attainable for the average individual. And so consequently, uh, a lot of people in America, I would argue that it's a catastrophic epidemic of uh, deficits and self-worth. And so one productive direction that would be good for lots of reasons would be to foster uh, constructive social changes that confer self-esteem to as many people as possible. All right, having said that, though, if I can dribble on for a moment, that sounds I think like a tall order. Yeah, it, that's a tall order, but I think that by itself is necessary but not sufficient. And, and uh, other things that I would throw in in no particular order, um, I, I think uh, race relations will remain tense. Um, and Till we could make uh, the difficult move of starting to respect each other. I know that we talk a lot in our culture uh, about tolerance, and, and yet, um, you know, we were talking at dinner tonight about my buddy Mike Salzman, who's a professor in psychology at the University of Hawaii, and, and Mike often talks about the need to go way beyond tolerance. What does it mean when you say to somebody, I tolerate you? Well, that's simply not enough. Mike argues that as long as we're willing to just settle for tolerance, uh, we're not going to get anywhere, that we need to start with a mutual recognition uh, of the fundamental worthiness of every form of life, regardless of uh, the ethnic uh, uh, descriptions that we apply to ourselves. And so I think respect is a big start. Uh, I think restitution of some sort would be good. I I think we've gone to enormous lengths to deny the systematic problems that we've inflicted. We're a country that was founded on genocide, built on the backs of slaves, and it's not a pretty picture.
0: But a good start. No country is.
2: uh, There you go. No 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 country country is. is. But a good start would be... Uh, we, we've done less than some other cultures, like the Germans and the Japanese, let's say, after World War II, to begrudgingly even acknowledge that there are things that we could do. And if we can't make full restitution, how about just a, a, a wholehearted effort? Uh, to begin to distribute material and psychological resources how more about, equitably.
1: How about affirmative action?
0: Yeah. How about uh, affirmative yeah, action? That's going to be a hot button because we're just talking about. You mentioned systematizing things before the system. Yeah. And there's been some efforts to, uh, you know, busing in the 1950s and 60s, and, yeah. uh, and affirmative action now. I mean, does 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 forcing different people together help race relations or hurt race relations? Yeah both. And so here's, here comes the difficult
2: questions. You know, is integration good or bad? Affirmative action good or bad? And, and the problem is, in my opinion, that they are good and bad. Uh, integration, for example, is an unmitigated disaster if you just drop different people in the same room and, and don't provide them with a meaningful way to interact in a cooperative fashion in the service of a common goal. So to just have, like, black and Hispanic kids in Whitey's lunchroom, it, it doesn't do anything except exacerbate preexisting prejudices. And so just busing kids to different school systems has not helped. On the other hand, there's incredibly, I think, convincing evidence by a guy in California's name's Elliot Aronson at the University of California, Santa Cruz, I believe. And it, uh, Aronson's point is that when you put different people together, And when you ask them to do something that requires everyone's cooperation, and when you acknowledge that everyone brings something to the enterprise, uh, people quickly overcome their prejudices and tend to see folks as they genuinely are. And so with integration, I think it's more than just getting different folks living in the same neighborhood where they never get together. I think
0: we've got to go one step further. We've got to be pulling together in a common direction. That's right. Trying to get something to happen together.
1: Becker says at some point it seems that we need a hate object, a scapegoat, you said. But what you're saying is, yeah, that's true, but if you put people together in a common goal, a common focus then they don't, they're not the hate object anymore.
2: Yeah, which, again, could be both good and bad. So momentarily, after September 11th, I, I was at Brooklyn College at the time, and that's an incredibly diverse and often tense environment. There's uh, Orthodox Jews, there's African Americans, Hispanics, Russians, uh, all kinds of folks who generally uh, have an uneasy peace in that they don't bother each other, but there, there's the usual... Racial and religious epithets. Well, after 9-11, uh, for weeks, uh, th- literally everyone at Brooklyn College came together. But they came together, united in their contempt for just about anything Islamic. And so sometimes uh, it's not a great idea if you divest yourselves of your internal differences uh, only to unite against a designated um, you know, evil incarnate uh, elsewhere. You know, on the other hand, Becker has a point that may be tough to pull off, but, but I like it as uh, a way to go. Uh, and it may sound glib or even stupid, but at the end of Escape from Evil, Becker says, you know, we're not going to get rid of hate, and we really probably shouldn't try. That was a Freud idea also, but so we got to hate the right things. Uh, And so Becker wonders, instead of hating somebody because they're a communist or because they're homosexual or because they're old or they don't speak English or we don't like what they eat or their national anthem, well, let's hate poverty or, or let's hate. Um, you know, authoritarian types. Let's hate Barry Manilow. Uh, no, no offense, <laughs> uh, if if he uh, happens to be somebody that you like, that was unfair to Barry. He's a good dancer, but the point is, is uh, there there are better and more deserving objects of our hatred, and that we should actively strive to think about that. Uh, Becker at his most somber moment in Escape from Evil. Wonders if humanity is a viable form of life. Let, I remember let's that. It, you I know, remember
0: not liking that. I did not like I that. I don't like to hear someone really smart say that. That, that, that brought it's me way down. Hopeless, way yeah. down.
2: Uh, now he turns right around and says, "Let's not go that way." But the point yep. that he does make that we that is certainly food for thought is that we are a very young species, metaphorically speaking. The human race is still in diapers. Yep. And, and it's not clear that self conscious pieces of mortal meat was a, a good idea. Intelligence has its virtues, but, but it's also, also got big drawbacks. its problems. That's right.
1: And you have and, to be vigilant to look inside yourself to see, well, maybe I am being prejudiced. Yes,
2: that's, right. that's
0: right. Moment. We're and, all prejudiced, yeah, and that's exactly. another that's important it. thing that we need to grant. You're raised pres- prejudiced. That's, yeah. that's right. But, uh, our guest has been Dr. Sheldon Solomon, professor of social psychology at Skidmore College. Sheldon, thank you for another wonderful discussion it was great to have you here we're going to try to get you again yeah i hope so thank you sheldon you've been listening to an interview with sheldon solomon talking about prejudice ernest becker and terror management theory thank you sheldon well so what i think? love a lot of ideas uh from that piece it's uh particularly rich with them But when he says that if if you grant the other person the legitimacy of an alternate conception of reality, then you do so by undermining the confidence that you have in your own version of reality. And once that happens, you expose yourself to the very anxiety that those beliefs were forged originally to help you resolve somehow. I think that's a fundamental idea. I mean,
1: this is a central idea to understanding so many of our society's problems. Like, look at the Middle East wars. Look at the Middle East wars, for one example. We've been at war with Muslims in their homelands for, what, 19 years now? We're opposed to each other because our worldviews are different and our immortality strategies are different, and we're both threatened by the other's belief system. Because they
0: undermine our own belief system. Because if I, exactly. if they're, if, and 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 we undermine, we if undermine right, theirs, then I might be wrong, and I can't be wrong, it's and right. vice versa. So the
1: answer is obviously to kill thousands of sure. people in this insane way to overcome death anxiety. Wow, uh, can't we? Can't we? Can't we find an alternative? I mean, in the twenty first century, can't we? Can't find an I alternative. Don't know. The other idea that that really hit me is we asked Sheldon, how do we improve race relations? And he said, well, one way is to provide opportunities for as many people as possible in our culture to feel good about themselves, white, black, and brown. And I think this is a remarkable idea. I mean, most discussions of race relations focus on making black and brown people feel better about themselves. But Sheldon is ta- yeah, Sheldon is talking about white people's self-esteem. So think about the millions of white working people in Middle America who are making good livings, working in union jobs, in factories, and who are now making a third of what they used to yeah. make, working in service industry jobs. Their kids are living in their parents' basements because they can't afford their own places. They, yeah. uh, and then their families, they had little hope for the future. And the economic and social stresses that the white working people in America, in middle America, had experienced for decades left them with reduced self esteem and reduced defenses against death anxiety. I think right. that is like, who, who talks about that? When they talk nobody's about ta- the, nobody's
0: the, the, talking about this,
1: no. But that's what it's about: reduced defenses against. He also death. says
0: uh, right. when you when you put different people together, uh, who would probably not get along, but you give them something to do that requires everyone to cooperate, and you acknowledge that everyone brings something to the enterprise. People quickly overcome their prejudice, and they send, tend to see everyone genuinely as they are, because everyone's working together to get something done right there's just no time to pick on the other person
1: yeah and we see that in our own lives like when you're on a sports team or in a band or you're in a play right or in a corporation in a department or work team you don't focus on your teammates color that all goes away when you're when you're all focused on the same goal and you depend on them and they depend on you, then race becomes a non issue. But, but let me, let me get yeah. back to what I was saying that the, the whole thing about the middle American problem with the defense against death anxiety being reduced, their stress didn't produce racism. That's baked into our culture through socialization. We're all raised to be racist in America to some yeah, degree. Yeah, I think it's but, probably some of it's unavoidable. Right. But when a charismatic leader instinctively or purposefully exploits that vulnerability for political reasons, he exposes a fault line in our society. He's able, Yeah, that's for sure. Right. He's able to manipulate people's fear. Shift blame away from themselves and the system we're in and onto the other. And when he gives tacit permission to let that racism rear its ugly head, we have widespread bigotry against brown immigrants, black people, Jews, Muslims, you name it. We have people marching in yep. Charlotte with Nazi and white supremacist signs and slogans, and ultimately people get killed. So. Yep so we need another way to give people self-esteem not by manipulating fear or othering but self-esteem based on new forms of heroism that means right. economic inequality has to be addressed as one way to reduce bigotry in our society that that's that's my takeaway from this absolutely. anyway absolutely and and then, and then there's the the awful last question is humanity a viable form of life? Oh, I, as I said <laughs>
0: back in the other interview, I don't like that question.
1: Well, as Sheldon has said on other occasions, he, we may be the only form of life that causes our own yeah, extinction. That's, that's a heavy thought. But he has often asked the question is there a way for humans in general to have self esteem without othering someone else, without being threatened by someone else or, or, Or hating someone else. I mean, um, here we are in a a mismanaged pandemic. We're worried about climate chaos. We're hoping against hope that there's not a nuclear war. Is it possible for humanity to overcome its destructive behavior by gaining a, a deep understanding of death denial? I don't know, Steve. This seems to be the first time anybody's posed the question like that. I don't know. But I've often said, we've been saying this for a long time, you and me. If a large enough mass of people embraced Becker's ideas, would they change the way we all live? Or is
0: it hopeless? That's the question of the hour, my friend.
1: Well, tune in again, thoughtful listeners. (laughs) We'll get to that one eventually. So we've been talking about prejudice, the psychological underpinnings, and the problem in our society. Join us next time when we discuss illusion and the role it plays for all of us as individuals and a society.
0: Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com and support us on
1: Patreon. Right. Patreon, not Patreon, like I say with my, that's my Baltimore accent, forgive me. And thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Thank
0: you.